is a blue. You're listening to Three Valleys Radio. Welcome to our In Conversation program. In this town, you're out of luck. Every week we talk to a sporting personality to find out just what makes them tick. And you're not moving anywhere. From their early childhood, to their professional career, to their musical tastes. Take you out of this place, someone you can We cover it all. So sit back and enjoy as we talk to this week's special guest. Here on Three Valleys Radio. Good evening and welcome to In Conversation. My name is Eddie Hopper and I'm delighted to welcome to the show tonight one of the ITV racing team, none other than Richard Hoyle. Well, first of all, Richard, good afternoon. Um, thank you very much for joining us on the show. I suppose the first question to ask you really is, um, in, in most cases, uh, people I've spoken to about racing have, have had this passion about horses. So uh, question one, really, have you have you had a passion for horses? Have you ever ridden horses? Have you been involved in any racing or anything like that? No, not really, no, particularly, particularly answering most of the ridden. Um, my interest in racing actually came initially um, through numbers, really. Yeah. I, as a kid, I, I loved everything numerical, whether they be tables and, you know, goal differences and uh, the averages for the cricket first class averages used to be published in the papers always always fascinated me and i had a good understanding and relationship with numbers mm-hmm. um and was so initially you know going to accounting um and so as a result i found the application of numbers within racing the thing that was, was fascinating me i mean these days obviously you can just sit at a computer and press a button and you get horse's career lifetime stats to do whatever you wish to do with but in those days it wasn't the case you know you had the old-fashioned form books and you know i maintained lots of the old little ledger cards and if you stumbled across the fact that you know a, a horse chaser was two and a half miles on fast ground um you know, around certain tracks or up to a certain mark then it could pay profits for you you know year in year out yeah so now it's obvious to everyone with a computer so no i came at it from a numbers perspective and then grew to love the sport and when i first went and you saw the sort of, you know, the, the power of the horse and the fact that it, what looked like small things on TV, you could just move around when you went and stood there. You know, they took off in front of you and landed 30 feet away and were going at 35 miles an hour, particularly the national hunt side of things. Um, yeah, I, I love, because you love the sport through that. And so it became the ideal sort of merger, really, between um, the challenge of sorting out a winner through the numerous analysis virtually, versus then enjoying going to the races to to watch how you fared and so from quite an early age I was a, a regular on, on racing obviously the, the interest bit you as it were and uh, you are you were obviously you know from that point on presumably you were you were well into it but um, you know how did you get into that television well the, the commentary thing is one of those really you know nauseating stories in many ways because um, so I left school and, and um, went straight into accountancy um, that's sort of the sort of thing you did uh, or the school tell you did. Incidentally, I only stay in touch with one master from my school. He was my careers master, who loves racing, and he never told me that when I was at school. 
difficult. He must have known I was well known, but yeah. he never mentioned it. And I always rib him to say, look, you didn't even push me in the right direction. You just sent me off to be an accountant. So anyway, I was, I was doing accountancy. And to cut a long story short, in the early 90s, there was a recession, not similar to something we're probably about to go through now. Yeah. And I'd done very well. I'd, I'd qualified very young. And um, normally, my next role would have been, you know, finance director of one of the divisions of one of the companies I was working at. But I was only 25, 26 at the time, and, and unbeknown probably to those that were doing the interviews in those days, you know, everyone's a bit more conservative in the recession, and they were giving it to the sort of 27, 28 year olds. And it became obvious to me I had a year or two in hand here where I was going to have to do something really boring and fill in those gaps of the CV that I'd sort of hoped to avoid. But as I hadn't gone to university, um, there was also the option of, with the, the qualification behind me, of doing something I might enjoy. So racing or travel were both potential options. And I wrote lots of letters to various companies in racing, obviously with limited reaction, and then applied for a job for a commentary yeah. or a commentator out of the sporting life, completely randomly. Hadn't grown up wanting to do one. Um, when we chat about the music, I'll come on to explain about how, if you like, the performing aspect had... Um, I had no fear of that through things I'd done younger. And my role as an accountant was not office-bound. It was out in retail, you know, liaising with managers and very much hands-on. Mm. So that sort of thing hadn't saved me. But I obviously was a massive surprise to find out that I, that I could do it. Because <laughs> I hadn't really tried until that point. Um, my late mum's partner worked in television, which was a massive break for me, yeah. um, in the sense that he set up a studio in, our, um, in her living room. And I knew he was only doing it as a favour. And we obviously practiced a couple, and we were about half an hour in when he said, oh, just, you know, okay, just take a break. And I'm thinking, he's, you know, he's done his piece, fair play to him. And he said to me, it's as big a surprise to me as it will be to you, but um, you're actually all right. <laughs> and he would know, he'd done, lots of, he'd done a lot of stuff. So yeah. we encouraged to stick a demo tape in, because I hadn't realised you needed to send so, a demo tape in. So how, did, how did he reach that assessment then? Did, did, you, did you sort of play some silent... Um races on the TV sort of thing, and then you commentated to it, did you? Yeah, exactly, exactly that, exactly that. Um, you know, I, subconsciously in my mind when I've been analysing races, you know, you're, you're, as I said, you're commentating in your mind. You're not really commentating, but you are identifying horses at speed. Um, I find it very strange that more people can't seem to do it, you know, particularly people who I know know they're racing inside out and back to front. Mm. It just seems a happy circumstance from my perspective that it seems to be the combination of two or three things that that people may find difficult in terms of, you know, broadcasting or public speaking or um, performing, if you like, versus a knowledge of a specific sport. It's very difficult to pick up knowledge of racing if you haven't followed it yeah. when you were young. Yeah. Far, yeah. far harder than other sports, both in terms of terminology, sort of people, and just general grounding. It's not something... Racing's quite a slow burn, knowledge-wise. Mm. It's not easy to cram and not be found out. So... Um, as a result, you've got an advantage if you followed it since you were, were young, as I obviously had, you know, as I obviously had done. Time for some music now, and Richard's choice of music is um, not what you'd expect. Let's put it like that. And we're going to kick off with the first one, which is the Boomtown Rats, no less, and Rat Trap. <laughs>
was a lot of rockin' going on that night. Cruising time for the young bright lights. Just down past the gas rush by the meat factory door. The five lamp boys were coming on strong. The Saturday night city beat had already started and the, the pulse of the corner boys just sprang into action and young Billy watching on the yellow street light and said tonight of all nights it's gonna be a light night. Billy don't like it living here in this town. He said traps have been sprung long before he was born. He said hope fast is just behind all the closed doors. I'm pressing grind from its scabbers to sword. The screaming and crying in the high-rise block. It's a rat trap, Billy, but you're already caught. Hey, you can make it if you wanna, or you need a bad enough. You're young and good-looking, and you're acting kind of tough anyway. It's Saturday night, time to see what's going down. Pull on the right suit, Billy, head for the right side of town. It's only 8 o'clock, but you're already bored. You don't know what it is, but there's gotta be more. You
the Boomtown Rats there and Rat Trap. So, so how how intently, you know, was your knowledge at that point? I mean, didn't you know you said you, you followed it from you know a few years now. Um, were you sort of really genned up on it, or were you just partially genned up on it? I mean, you know, to what degree did you your knowledge level stand, as it were? I think when I started, I was very concerned about that. Um, in the sense that you know, I thought I knew quite a lot about racing, but I've been working full time as an accountant until relatively recently, so I'd only been able to devote a certain amount of time to it. I've been going to exams as well, yeah. you know, only a couple of years earlier. Um, but it turned out it was pretty good, yeah. um, and I actually expected it to fare a lot worse. You know, you, you sort of feel you were going to go into that uh, sort of hallowed area where you'd be told lots of things about you know, mm. trainers, sources, and this sort of thing, and, and your own knowledge would be found out. But quite often, I'd be listening to something, thinking. Yeah, but that doesn't go on the ground, or that's a lot stronger race than you think it is, or that's a really bad race, so it does have a chance. Yeah. Um, I, I had a very good overall perspective of, of racing as, as it happened. I wouldn't have been arrogant enough to have thought that going into it, and I definitely acted as a sponge at various times of my career. I love listening to people just talking, just listening to their thoughts, and you can process them. You don't have to agree with very many, but as an old, you know, Hong Kong proverb, um, you know, even the fool says a few wise words, and if you're you're open enough to, to listen to it all and think, yeah, okay, that might be true, that might not be, that's absolute rubbish. And sometimes the absolute rubbish would come from people who you know, um, you know, spoke a lot of sense for the majority of the time. Trainers would have a good appraisal of their own horse. They quite often have a very poor appraisal as to the merit of the race it was running in, unless they had a sort of good, you know, form student on side with them. Um, and so pretty quickly I learned, you know, there's nothing worse than losing money on somebody else's opinion. Yeah. Basically, lose money on your own opinion yeah. and learn from it, and hopefully you won't lose money after a while. But if you constantly rely on a tip or something like that, then um, mm. you're going to lose, I'm afraid. Do you think, though, that the the, uh, the approach from trainers, uh, is that they're kind of sort of bamboozled by their own own sort of um, self-importance, if you like, and, you know, well, it's my horse, so it's bound to be better than the other horse. You know, is, is that an element, do you think? Yeah, I think the good trainers know their horse's limitations and that's as important as you know, knowing their potential in a way because particularly with the handicap system as we have it in this country if you believe in a horse's potential and try them very highly early on you are sort of showing your hand now you know we can argue about whether this is the right foundation for racing in this country um, but primarily you're better off and so mark prescott fascinated me he was a very much a thinking man uh, he had a horse, one of my favourite horses growing up, was a horse called Misty Halo, who won something like 20 races. Uh, she was the winning most mare for many years until she was passed. And um, so Mark's a great company as well, and I was chatting to him about, uh, about her, and he said, well, the key was to never win a race more than 1,500 quid with her, because in those days, the, the conditions of lots of races, you weren't eligible if you won a race over 1,500 pounds. So she used to go to the Isle when they used to race on the Isle of Man and places like that. Yeah. And he campaigned her that way. And it stuck with me that, you know, sometimes knowing a horse's limitations, starting them out quietly, he was one of the first to utilise winning or weather maidens as a way that the handicapper wouldn't give you very much because you've probably beaten, in those days, not very good horses on the all weather. It's very different now. Yeah. So you couldn't, even if you won by five lengths, you weren't going to get a rating. If you ran at Newbury in a really hot maiden and you finished seventh behind some really good horses, you could spend a whole year getting your handicap mark down to a realistic appraisal of your horse. So mm. to answer your original question, a good trainer knows his horse's limitations rather than talks up its potential, to my mind at least. 
more music now and just to show you what I meant about musical choice this next one's called Spread a Little Happiness by Dennis Lawson happiness with Dennis Lawson so going back to you know you, you've, you've got this job now then um, who, who was your first employer so SIS 
um, were the first ones. They mm-hmm. were having um, different betting shops, sorry, different commentaries in the betting shop to those that were on course. Yeah. Probably fair to say the old course style was, uh, you know, in those days courses were managed by, you know, ex-army, um, very um, old school type people, and the thought of having young people doing commentaries was completely alien. And so it tends to be older people who've fallen into those with lovely BBC um, voices, if you like, rather yeah. than any sort of young whippersnappers. But SOS was smart enough to realise that the betting shop audience was probably slightly different. Jim McGrath had just come over from Australia and had very much changed the style of, of commentaries that were beginning to become um, preferred, if you like. Yeah. Um, and so we were doing the betting shop commentaries. And the courses were, you say, initially weren't necessarily overly helpful. We commentated from some really dreadful positions, but it was a great way to learn. Yeah. You know, you're doing a lot of days because we were actually travelling around with the crews and um, you were commentating, as I say, often through binoculars, very, very rarely with any monitor. There were no on big screens in those days. No. Um, you know, drawing the colours out yourself. Um, and it just taught you that way. It's the best way to learn because, you know, I'm still not phased if my, if my monitor goes or anything like that. It's, you know, one of, you know, just put your binoculars up and your binoculars always to hand anyway. And, you know, most of us sort of that generation learned that way. But, uh, yeah, it was an, an amalgam from the younger course commentary. So, you know, Simon Holtley, McKenzie and Bartlett all came over and would, were doing both on course and also for SIS. And then a couple of us started with myself and John Hunt, for the two that got the job. He was a policeman, or had been a policeman, <laughs> an yeah. accountant. And um, fair play to, to George Irvin and Mick Hamilton at SIS because they, they took a chance on us. And that's the hardest thing is to find the opportunity. It's, you know, it's very difficult when you explain to people how to break in that often it is a random event and you just have yeah. to be able to take advantage of that but um yeah it was, an, it was a really interesting first first few years and we were lucky we had plenty of time on the mic in very difficult conditions and that really helped us progress i think and presumably you loved it from, from day one did you oh absolutely yeah you know i remember handing my notice in and you know i was getting about a quarter of what i was earning as an accountant yeah. five days of my first contract um and i expected to be doing people's books really uh, you know yeah. uh, but i was lucky enough to get some some um, studio work initially through Labrooks and then pretty swiftly for SIS internally. And that turned out to be a really go- real golden time. The, the booths in those days, you know, when we were doing the betting shop shows and um, before the majority of betting shops were tech services. Everyone will remember the old board markers from those, that generation. I'd been a board marker myself. Yeah. And it was, you know, great fun. Um, and it was myself, Ian Bartlett, John Hunt, um, Robert Cooper. They were all in at that time, and um, it was a brilliant place to learn. You were on air a long time. You had open talkback, so there was someone in your ear the whole time, taking a mickey if you made a mistake, or you know. And, and that served as a real good grounding, really. I think for sort of you know talkback on television, which was to come later. Mm-hmm. And I think I was lucky as well. I got breaks every couple of years, you know, in terms of um, presenting the very first day on the very first racing channel, which was you know highly unlikely. At that stage, I was with a far more experienced bunch of, of presenters. But again, George showed great faith, and I'd done all the I'd done all of the the dummy runs, sat down in that studio for hours on end while they changed the lighting yet again. And um, they showed enough faith in me to give me that day. Then I went to Hong Kong, and you know, every couple of years there was something different that was uh, that was moving me along and giving me more experience. Really, more music now, and this time it's Jody Mitchell and both sides now. Everywhere 
the sound of Jody Mitchell and both sides now. now I've obviously been reading up on you and um, Hong Kong Japan Cup Dubai Spain uh, you know when in, in in your sort of life story as it were did they sort of come along were, were they fairly uh, quickly into your uh, regime as it were? So I started commentating in 92 um, and my racing channel I think had started in 95 and then Early in 1997, Jim McGrath, Australian Jim McGrath, who'd come from Hong Kong, yeah. um, said to me that there was a job going in Hong Kong, mixing, presenting and commentating, and he thought it would be good for me. Um, I was just m- making some progress in the UK. Um, I'd just done my first national and etc. And so I sat away and went away and thought about it. Now, in my accounting days, I was a... A planning analyst. I wasn't, a, you know, a big counter in that sort of sense. And, and I realised that, you know, my unique selling point. If I went and did that job, would I be? The, I would be the first English commentator to work abroad consistently. Um, and so far from being the new guy who'd been the accountant, this was a chance to really go and, and test myself. I honestly didn't think I'd get it, uh, I, you know, but I didn't realise how 
And so I went to Hong Kong, really, how much the candidacy of someone who's respected there, putting your name forward, carries an awful lot of weight. Um, and so I say, I, I kept getting to the next stage without really thinking it was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, um, I was flying out on the Wednesday. Um, this was just before the handover in 1997. So everyone else was seeing Mr. Patton and his daughters sobbing by the side of the, <laughs> of the river. Um, and I was flying out to potentially sign a, a, a couple of years deal. And it was the best the best decision I made, really, because it did take things to a new level. The, the, in Hong Kong, the product is God. You know, it was the only legalised form of gambling outside the lottery at that stage. Yeah. For a country whose population gamble more percentage of their disposable income than anywhere else, and it represents over 10% of the tax take of the, of the, the government. So, you know, it, it's the most watched programme, like Coronation Street used to be over here every week. You know, the racing on Saturday and Wednesday was the most watched programmes and the opportunity to work within it. When people came out and saw the glittering product and the huge numbers and everything else, uh, you were associated with that product. And even though it had a lot of problems, they weren't on the surface. No. And uh, then you can work abroad because people come from overseas and they leave it your card and you just keep in touch with them. And they always say, oh, if you're over or, you know, occasionally they've been invited to come over. And the caller before me, Terry Spargo, went, ended up in Dubai, and that's how I ended up presenting over there. But the two years I did in Hong Kong, particularly the work I did with a jockey called Felix Kutzi, who became a, a fantastic friend, and I'd never ridden, obviously, but he was a jockey who liked riding to a plan yeah. and loved talking about how to do it. And once we decided on a plan, he would just go out and ride. It was the closest I could ever get to be in a saddle. I'd just watch him and know where he's going to go. I can still watch tapes and tell you where he's going to go and what he's thinking and... Uh, it was a brilliant association, and uh, we won quite a few big races over there. And he had, a, he had a, you know, a real good end to his Hong Kong career um, for the last few seasons there, and it was uh, a real, real fun time actually. So, at, at this point, were you married still, or you know, just still? I don't know. Really like I was very much single, single, um, which was good because that had been a big factor. Even though I was seeing someone at the time, it wasn't overly serious. It wasn't going to be, and. Um, if you like, it was all down to me. If I had failed, it was only me that was going to carry the consequences. I think if you had the burden of... Um, that's a burden in that, uh, not to miss that uh, family and partners are, but they complicate the issue as regards living in Hong Kong. Because, you know, my apartment, which was perfectly OK, Jockey Club, I was, Jockey Club like the civil service, I was rated along, but, you know, I lived opposite the cooks and this sort of thing, in an apartment that was about 1,000 square feet. Mm. You know, and that's, that's what life in Hong Kong was like, you know. Yeah. Um, for 95% of the time, it was the most brilliant place in the world. For the other 5%, it was hell on earth. Because you just kept bumping into people. It was hot and sweaty. There was massive humanity in concrete and no green in sight. So it was a, certainly a life experience as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it would have been a far harder decision for me. And that's eventually why I returned home, because at that stage, I'd coming back in the summer to work on UK race courses because I didn't take the break. I, I came back and commentated in the UK in a closed season. Yeah. Um, and by that time, I was, you know, seeing the girl who was going to be my, become my wife. And uh, that changed the, the perspective somewhat. She'd come out for a week or two, but you're not going to get a work permit no. over there easily for your other half. So, uh, yeah, it changes the dynamics, certainly, I think, when, uh, you know, when you have other ones uh, or other interests <laughs> outside of racing, if you like. Yeah. So, uh, I, I literally, I've just read a book um, about Victor Chandler. Um Victor, and he—he's you know seemed to have been one of the sort of uh, 
forerunners of of betting and, and moving in those sort of circles in, in the Far East. And there seemed to be an awful lot of dubious people around from reading this book. I mean, did you come across much of that over there? The fascinating thing about Hong Kong was there were only about 1,200 horses. So, you know, everyone thought, oh, that'd be really easy. But um, everybody knew absolutely everything about every horse. You know, the level of knowledge as regards each horse. And it was dominated by the betting syndicates over at that time. They were just moving out of their probably payday. Yeah. But they had absolutely, you know, cleaned up with the inefficient markets and the, the public betting on, you know, superstition and birthdays and numbers and everything else made the markets inefficient. And yeah. because the variables are far less, you know, there's only two tracks that both go right-handed, the ground's pretty consistent, the horses race against each other all the time. It was very easy for the computers to, to model effectively what the market should be. Um, Victor's involvement, I think, legitimately, if you like, would be setting up the... the the betting on football, which was after my time, but I, I think they were involved very much with the consultancy side of that. But, oh, yes, there's lots of colourful characters. The amount of money that was swinging around, yeah. you know, there's more turned over in one meeting in Hong Kong than there was in the entire season in the, in the UK, which is <laughs> astonishing. That's all, that's... Um, and where there's money, there's the potential for, um, for abuse of that. And yeah. the love-hate relationship between syndicates and the jockey club, you know, used to change almost season by season. Um, and that was a, quite a, an interesting time. But the best thing over there was just to be a sponge, just to listen to people. I met so many smart people over there. Um, Alan Woods and Bill Benter were the two who ran big computer syndicates, and both were good enough to give time, particularly Bill Benter, to explain. And they loved chatting. They'd both been card counters in the past, or Bill had, and some of the fascinating stories about card counting, etc. They were mathematicians. They weren't had great interest in racing. They employed other people to provide the uh, little tweaks to... Um, the form, if you like, to, to make what went into the computers more accurate. Mm. Um, but they were very, very smart people in uh, knowing what they did, which was to write you know, good computer algorithms to generate the potential of, uh, of big, big takes out of, um, of inefficient pools. I've often sort of read about American racing in particular. Uh, they seem to sort of base an awful lot of their calculations in America on the time, more so than we do in this country, I think. Um, is it the same over in Hong Kong, in that it's all a time-based sort of uh, thing? <laughs> yeah, inter interesting that the timing system is still very basic when I was over there. But yes, it is. Yes, times are, are more important over there. And there, there are a couple of, couple of reasons. First of all, um, they're very accurate with their measurements of moving running rails. Yeah. So when we raced on the, the A course was when it's in, in a configuration, the B course was out four metres, then it was the C course, then C plus three. And they remeasured and you moved the starts and so the stalls were there and you could compare, you know, C plus three races on one day to another C plus three race and the ground didn't change massively. In this country, we just move rails higgledy-piggledy, the ground descriptions are all over the shop at times. Not, in, not inaccurate, but they're very different. Yeah. It doesn't lend itself as naturally to, to timing as it does on a dirt-based system yeah. um, in America, which is primarily where time's of most use. Where we missed the boat was when we introduced all-weather racing, um, you know, when it started at Lingfield. Yeah. Pretty swiftly, had we followed with sectional times, that would have given all-weather racing a unique setting point. You'd have got time devotees right from the word go, and it would definitely have enhanced all-weather racing more quickly than actually happened. All-weather racing continues to advance better horses are continually run on there now and sectional timing would be massively useful we do have it uh, in this country now um the ability of commentators to refer to it is limited at the moment um, but certainly in hong kong I, you know i knew the sections for every
class of every single track at, at Happy Valley and Chartin. And, you know, with the jockey I was working with and the broadcast, I would know exactly how fast they should be and shouldn't go. And it's pretty straightforward. Yeah. The slower you go, the more it favours the front runner because they're going to run home faster. Yeah. And even yeah. though the better horse might be three lengths off the Whitler leader, if that leader is capable of running home extremely quickly, then there's only a limit as to how much ground can be made up from those behind. And likewise, if they go off far too fast, like the recent Kentucky Derby, then it doesn't matter. There's no horse on the planet that will you know, mm. be staggering home as slowly as those that forced the pace that day. It will go to the favour. Now, within that, there's lots of little nuances and little foibles and little you know, yeah. disagreements as to what the ground is. But fundamentally, times work well on the all-weather where the ground is consistent and the rails don't move. Um, it doesn't work as well on turf in this country, and that's the limitation. Another track now, and this time it's squeezing up the junction.
piece there and up the junction. Well, they do uh, ITV now. You you have the sectional uh, times on there, don't you, on the screen, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, we do. Uh, we do. And it's taken a long slog to get those numbers into a position where we're comfortable that they are suitably accurate to put out. Mm. Um, you know, you, if you wait, like anything, if you wait until the product is 100% refined, you will be waiting forever. <laughs> so you do have to cross the threshold and realise that every now and again, even though there are foibles and errors or, you know, roundings in there that we might prefer weren't there, fundamentally you can begin to educate by putting those numbers on the screen. Mm. Uh, for one reason, you know, if they're going sub-11 seconds in anything other than a top-class sprint to the furlong, they're going to be too quick. If they're going 13 and a half to 14, unless they're climbing one of the steepest descents, you know, in the early stages of the derby, then they're going too slow. And so you can begin to educate people's relationships, get them used to looking at the numbers. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, you can see whether they're increasing and decreasing in speed, although that often is driven by whether they're going up or downhill. So it's of more use on a flat track. I think I would have preferred to it at Haydock on Saturday because I know it's a flat track, so it's yeah. not being driven by the gradient that it is when you, for example, at Epsom where, or Ascot where the fastest furlong will just be coming down Tatton Corner or it will be running down towards Swindley Bottom almost without exception. Yeah. Just because that's a fundamental, you know, determined by the gradient rather than how fast they're going. But um, generally, the more we can put up, hopefully the more useful people will find it because for the mm. younger generation, data is key. You know, my kids love watching Formula One, which is, yeah. for much of the time, the most boring sport on the planet in terms of, you know, um, positions changing. But my lads will sit and watch, or you'll sit my younger one, you know, saying, oh, you know, seven, seven, eight, science is, you know, two seconds faster a lap now than um, than Bottas or something like that, you know. And, mm. and even mm. though there's no chance of catching him, passing him, once he gets there, he's still fascinated. And that's the point. Can you mm. find ways of hooking people when their, you know, interests are very different from probably what got myself interested in the sport all those years ago? Yeah. So, uh, where are we now then? You, you've done Hong Kong, um, presumably Dubai, Spain and the Japan Cup were just initial sort of bookings, as it were, for, for specific races? Yeah, so I worked in Dubai for a long time. So Spain, Spain was a specific, it was a Spanish derby one at Mijas, and I think Mijas um, for SIS was a potential showing into the shops. I think Victor Charlotte might have been involved there as well. I think they might have at that stage been uh, running the, um, the local uh, betting shops and the idea, I think, was to see whether the product would stand up to scrutiny, which it probably didn't, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Mihas, at least, although Spanish racing itself at San Sebastian, in particular, is a fantastic experience if you want to go. And, and Japan Cup was a pure chance. Unfortunately, Brian Martin's mother died. He was the Australian commentator on the build-up to the race, and I was the only sort of English-speaking caller who was anywhere near enough to get there, and I was very, very fortunate. Mm. Two reasons, actually. Firstly, it was, it was won by Pulsudski, um, you know, it was won by an English horse, which, you know, and I was there doing the commentary, so it got picked up right the way around the world. Um, there were also a few Australian horses, and it was the first time they'd ever had a pommy call, you know, Australian call as well, a long way ahead of us, yeah. a long period of time. Um, and I think they expected some plummy old, old school voice, and they, they didn't get that. They got some, you know, youthful exuberance, probably far too keen, far too quick, but it did attract quite a bit of comment in Australia, and there was quite a bit of pick up there. And also because Nick Cadan who won the race, was very friendly with Robin Park, who was a doyen of the journalists out there. And Robin, who was fantastically helpful for me when I was in Hong Kong, always was a very big supporter, had basically told Mick that there was this young kid who was going there to cover it for the Hong Kong Jockey Club, you know, and just keep half an eye out for him. And at the post-race 
press conference when he was being asked questions, he was absolutely delightful to me. And that, you know, in terms of a couple of questions that I asked and something he did subsequently as well. And that really, really helped me because, you know, I didn't know him and I didn't know jockey, any jockeys of that ilk. But the quality of the interview he gave, the questioning wasn't much to cop, but the answers were pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they were sent all around and it, it really helped me sort of, you know, establish myself a little bit on the international sort of scene um, wow. with a, quite a bit of help from... <laughs> from Mick and Robin in that particular circumstance in Japan. But fantastic experience, 170,000 people on course. The camera work in Japan is absolutely chaos. So, again, the faithful binoculars came out and um, Tosovsky held on and won narrowly, and it was a great finish as well. So, uh, yeah, but God smiled on me very much that day in terms of uh, the break and getting there in the first place, the result and then the subsequent sort of pick-up of, uh, of, of the story afterwards. It, it sounds to me, though, is that you know, I mean, it kind of, it's, it's in a way, it's sort of similar to what I'm doing in the context of, you know, getting hold of people, making contacts. Is, you know, I've been doing this now for two and a half years, and you know, slowly the contact base is building, and and you know, it sounds like the same with you, really. You know, you you you're sort of making your mark, and then slowly you meet somebody, and then he meets somebody, and he knows somebody else, and it's just a sort of old boys, not exactly the old boys net, but but you know what I mean? It's, it's people know each oh, other. I think in terms of yeah, in terms of getting the opportunity broadcast-wise, that's, that's certainly true. It is people who know and, you know, hopefully they recommend you because they think you can do a good job as opposed to just being your mate. Yeah. Um, Hong Kong was interesting because obviously it was a very... I'm naturally quite shy. I'm, I'm not someone who, who feels, you know, that I can stand up and tell everyone all about racing or this sort of thing. I'll happily discuss my views. Um, but I prefer to be in the background and listen to others. But in Hong Kong, obviously, there was that sort of expat community. You got to know the jockeys more regularly. And it taught me two things, actually. One was not to be overly close to them, because mm. I remember going on holiday with one particular rider, his family, and, you know, a group of us. And then there was an extremely dodgy incident about three weeks later, and he got very upset that he felt, you know, um, his table had been switched up, and, you know, I thought you were my friend. That, mm. that, that awful line that comes out, and saying, well, look, are you telling me that I was wrong? Or are you telling me you didn't want me to say what I said because you thought I was your mate, in which case you know, my integrity as a broadcaster is being compromised because I know who you are. So, you know, that's where the line, as far as I'm concerned, is drawn. And so as a result, with the obvious exception, because as I say, I worked with Bailey for, you know, that's about 10 years. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't go out of my way to, to befriend, but I do definitely hope that any issues, everyone's professional enough to come and have a chat rather than seem aloof and it's mm. walking that line, really. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm very much enjoy asking people if, if I've been puzzled by an outcome afterwards, you know, I'll then definitely go and seek out a trainer and have a chat or just say mm, I thought that would run better than that or what did I do wrong or why did that, you know yeah. um, and that's, that's true with broadcasting as well other broadcasters, you know you generate friends who you think, you know does that work, did that work, was that good, was that bad you know, and you try and you know, self-appraise and, and take some advice from people who you trust which in this day and age of social media and what have you is, is, is even more important to, to listen to the right people rather than those that just make a lot of noise but whose knowledge is very limited. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I, certainly on the international stage, there's not that many people that work internationally in racing. You know, you're either domestic or you're international. Yeah. And I, I've definitely benefited from that period of time when I was in Hong Kong of, of being known by people who held races right the way around the planet and said, oh, might be quite good if we invited him or does he want to come over and be a part of the team? Yeah. English Raider this year, or you know, mm. um, and that really, really helped me particularly. Now here's a bonus track because I didn't get enough records from Richard, uh, and this one's called.
a town called Malice by our friends Jam. Go bonus track there from Jam, and it's called A Town Called Malice. So, uh, we're kind of are we back in this country now, then basically, when it you know, uh, yeah. So, it's three years I was in Hong Kong. Uh, I always say that the best decision I ever made was to go out there, and the second best decision yeah. I ever made was to come back when I did. Yeah, and that was always going to be the case. It was my it was the university degree I never had, racing in Hong Kong, the southern hemisphere, not northern hemisphere, was on track training, they were largely you know. South African and Australian riders, and it taught me a whole different type of thing. But you know, I wasn't intending to give up commentating um, and, and presenting. I was primarily a presenter in Hong Kong, and I said to the um, to race tech who ran the roster that you know I was going to get experience and I would hopefully come back a better caller, and they would benefit from it. And hence, that was the reason why they should support me going and continue to allow me to come back on as many days as I'd left. The big difference was those days were immediately better quality yeah. because, you know, rather than coming from that betting shop background, which courses had slightly sneered at for a few, then, um, 
all of a sudden I had Royal Hong Kong Jockey Club, yeah, minus the Royal yeah. after I'd been there two days. But, um, you know, on my CV, and that made me a lot more. And, you know, you'd met people who'd come out to Hong Kong. And that's when domestically things really began to pick up from, from my perspective. And I began to get, you know, significantly better quality days. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's, I suppose, when my career took off. And I'd, I'd made the right call. I, I'd, I'd had summed it up right when I thought about I'd be the first person to have worked overseas and that would be a good thing to have. That certainly turned out to be the case. That was a good a good feather in my cap, really. Um, you were known as the person who worked in Hong Kong yeah. rather than the accountant. Um, so so back in, in, in Blighty now then, um, you know, you, 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 was that when the Racing Channel and at the races, they, they sort of started to, to, to appear on the scene, had they? Yeah, so I'd, so I'd had done, as I said, I presented the very, very first afternoon's action on the original racing channel mm. when it was run by SIS. There'd then been, obviously, various permutations and then the launch of At The Races, which eventually was to go, the original At The Races we're talking here, not the one that currently exists and morphed into Sky Sports Racing, but the, the original product that had virtually everything signed with a big, um, big fanfare. And again, I was lucky. I was one of ten sort of core presenters for that. Um, and um, we started broadcasting out of Hayes. Again, it was a pretty good lineup. She was there, Lee McKenzie went on to do um, Formula One, uh, you know, Mike Catamole, lots of experienced people. Um, and yeah, that was yet another sort of new start published as The Brave New World with the Ed Lock was on there. You know, um, Nick Luck cut his teeth there, that's where he started out. I remember being asked to stay behind and watch this guy do his first American shift because <laughs> they thought he might be quite good. So I stayed behind and I watched about 10 minutes of it and I remember turning to the, the producer of the day and, and he said, well, you're off. I said, well, yeah, I'm off because <laughs> he's so good. He'll be, he'll be taking everyone's job in 10 years' time. That was about right. I think it was probably about five years. And that was, it, was a, it was a grounding for, for lots of uh, you know, for people coming through. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's really it. was race course commentaries mixed with some presenting, which primarily was for At The Races. And then the spin-off, when At The Races went belly up and it fractured into two, Racing TV and... The old out of the races now, Sky Sports Racing. Um, and we've been very lucky. Commentaries have never been divisive. I can work for a Sky Sports Racing track one day. I can work for a racing TV track the following day on course. Yeah. Thankfully, commentaries have been able to span that. There's no demarcation. But presenting-wise, that's different because you're the face of the channel. And I chose Racing UK or Racing UK as it was then because primarily most of my tracks that I called out were in that group. But it did mean I had to say to George Irvin, the man who gave me my very first job, that I was going to go to what he would have viewed as the other side. And that was yeah. one of the hardest things to ever do. George was quite um, uh, very fair, but um, quite a hard man. And um, I don't think he was overly pleased. But thankfully, he at least respected the fact that I didn't play one off against the other and explained my decision. And even though he would never have agreed with it, it's good that we've been able down the years to at least maintain, you know, maintain contact and I think he grudgingly would understand why I made that decision but um, it was quite hard at the time. So uh, at what point did uh, ITV Racing come in then? Well ITV so I gradually began to pick up more work on Channel 4 yeah. um, initially as a presenting and you know doing things like the morning and, and second side commentator um, when Graham Good began to reduce his number of days um, and I was also working you know Simon Holt and I had done what Fifteen Royal Ascots together when the BBC had it. We'd done it for on course, um, and you know Simon's been the biggest 
individual influence probably on you know on, on my career I'd worked with him right from, from the word go and um, so I was tending to be his number two for Channel 4 for quite a lot of the last years of their broadcast and then when I am due to go high flyer um, I was officially his you know number two yeah. um, and then when ITV got the contract off Channel 4 that's when the role I currently have was sort of up for grabs and I was quite fortunate because John Hunt would have been their initial choice, but John and I have been friends ever since the, the very early days when, of course, we started together. <clears throat> and I knew that he would probably want to stay with the BBC because he values, and he is an excellent commentator on more sports than racing, particularly um, swimming, particularly going to the Olympics um, for, you know, the Winter Olympics for bobsleigh and lose and all that sort of thing. And, you know, so he was an accomplished broadcaster across the, the sphere. And even though... I think he might have liked him to have gone to them. I knew he was unlikely to. And Simon was really unlucky because he basically just lost out because he'd always been so good for Channel 4 for so long. And unfortunately, when TV rights changes, change hands, one of the things they want to change is the on-course or the on-screen um, presences, if you like. And so, you know, I was very, very keen that, that Simon could come over with me and we could sort of share it, etc. But... Obviously, from ITV's perspective, they wanted something different, and I was suitably different because I was been number two, and Simon definitely lost out in that regard, which is a great shame because we were, you know, we were competing. Mm. We competing against the person you most admire. He's been a great friend. He is 100%, you know, solid in terms of, you know, straightforward to deal with. Yeah. No, he's, he's a nice guy. Together, and we just basically said, you know, one of us is going to win here, one of us is probably going to lose, and whatever happens, it mustn't affect the way we are with each other because, you know, mm. it's not of our making. And unfortunately, one of the hardest things, having had the call to offer me the job, because we promised we'd phone each other first rather than, you know, that awful someone sitting on a job knowing you've got it and the other person hasn't. In case that went on for weeks. Mm. And it was really hard to make the call to say, look, John, I've been offered the job. I just promised I'd let you know. And, you know, and it's still... Yeah, it's still, for me, it's still a shame that we couldn't have accommodated that yeah. more evenly. But unfortunately, from ITV's perspective, it wasn't a runner. And there has to be a point where you look after yourself. But it, it was only after exploring a few other options which didn't materialise. Mm. No, he's, he's, a, he's a lovely bloke. I mean, he comes on our radio show, um, you know, regularly. And uh, no, he's... Last musical track now, and it's Ed Sheeran and Shiver.
Ed Sheeran there and Shiver. So that kind of brings us around to, to, to more or less to uh, the current day, as it were. Um, did you get, I mean, you, you seem to, you know, I watch ITV racing regularly and they seem to be giving you a lot more, um, apart from just commentating, you, you sort of seem to be doing little special features or what have you. Do, you. do you do you have to have any training for that or does it come naturally to you or what? I think now I'm experienced, experienced enough. I did a lot of presenting when I was, you know, early on in my career and this sort of thing. And I've done lots of days on race courses, you know, when you were doing interviews. So yeah. by now I'm past the point of no return, probably. I'm afraid I'm probably past past training. But it was something that we threw back. I mean, Andrew Franklin with the old high flyer used to give his commentator a lot more to do. Mm. You know, you'd read, um, <clears throat> you'd read various captions, you read results, you'd, you'd get more involved in the program. Something IMG didn't do very much of, and both Simon and I didn't overly enjoy that because you weren't really part of the program as much. You just phoned you for a commentary and at the end of the day they picked up off you. And, and I know for Simon it was frustrating initially because he was probably more used to being an integral part. And after a while you just think, well, you just turn up, do your bit and go home. Mm. And that's not healthy, to me at least, that's not a healthy way of integrating but, but people into the team. You're, you're involved now though in, in what, I, what I think anyway, and I'm... I'm just a punter. I just watch the program, but um, you know, I, I think the ITV coverage is excellent. For you know, it's it's not just pure racing. There, there's an awful lot of extra stuff that you do, and you know, I find that very interesting. That's a you know, that's the hard balance, and it's very very difficult to persuade people who are you know specialists on racing that you should be running a a feature with a you know a TV chef showing you how to cook a scotch egg to go in a hamper at Royal Ascot. But the simple fact is. You know, we get more than double on main channel. Your average audience on <clears throat> ITV4 will be 350 to 400,000. Main channel, you'll be pushing a million. Yeah. 500,000 people that don't normally watch racing, which means they probably don't understand it. If you just go all technical on them for the whole time, you will lose them, and there's no way you persuade them to come over. But at least if you give them little bits and pieces of general interest or um, human interest stories, a little bit behind the scenes, maybe some history stuff, you're just trying to hit various different people's interests in order to make them think, actually, that was all right. I might watch a bit more of that. And then you can begin to educate them yeah. on racing through that sort of drip, drip. It's a bit like thinking of people on that, one of those travelators you get at the airport. You know? You've know, you got someone who's just got on at one end who really doesn't know very much at all, might have stumbled across it by accident, might be watching it with a friend, might be watching it with a family member, who really know very little. And if you blind them with science, they, it's going to be completely above their head. You've got someone who started watching three months ago. You've managed to hook them. They want to know a little bit more, but they're still not aficionados. And if you like, the aficionados at the far end who are right at the end of their journey, you're actually wanting them to, to subscribe to racing channels. Yeah. That is the point of what we're trying to do. We're not competing with them. Loads of people get shirty when they say, oh, you know, we don't see enough horses on the form and everything like that. If you really, really want that, that's the domain of a racing channel. Mm. We will try and show horses. Don't get me wrong, but that's... That, it's a frustration internally for those of us that like racing. We're constantly pushing for more four legs, less two. Mm. But at the same time, those who understand television better than I do will certainly know the benefits of having uh, Mark and Charlotte um, doing uh, fashion colour pieces when they're recognisable faces to those that watch Breakfast TV and think, well, hang on a second, I know her. Mm. You know, um, what's she doing there? And they'll give you a little bit of time, if you like, to, to get your sport across to them. And hopefully it will stick with a few. I understand the frustration of light-hearted pieces when people want you to be knee-deep in the form for one of the best, the best races, but they are also the days when we have the wider audience. If you don't appeal to the wider audience, then you won't be um, 
your viewing figures will suffer, so will your revenues and everything else that goes with that for, for the value of the TV rights. So you just have to bear in mind any TV programme that covers a wide range of uh, people's knowledge, abilities, interests cannot be solely for you. You have to accept some parts of the programme are for other parts. We want to make sure we move it so you don't get lost for three features of puerile stuff. You know, we'll, go, we'll quite often go from something that's very light to something that's very heavy. Yeah. That's a deliberate attempt to try and segment your audience. But it is the thing that people find hardest to understand. It's what I get most grief on yeah. in a race course mm. about because they're all aficionados there. Yeah. That's not really where we're always aiming the product. Not all the time, at least. Well, I'll tell you one thing, though. Francesca Cumani makes a hell of a difference. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we lost her at the moment because she's about to have her second child. So, yeah. um, a few days' time as well. So hopefully everything will, will go there. Um, you know, again, she, you know, she perfect background from um, uh, her background, particularly with the, the breeding side of things and the you know civic stud which her family own, as well as obviously Luca having done the training, etc. It's all about communication. It's about you know, from a presenting point of view, thankfully I don't have to worry about that. Now. I just stuck up in the comedy box on the roof. But it's about warmth, it's about personality, it's about knowledge, yeah. it's about being flexible. People, few people realise how chaotic live television is, particularly in ITV when you've got. You know, horse races that can go off three minutes late and you've got commercial breaks to take and you mustn't go into a commercial break if you're going to miss something yeah. out the other side. It is very complicated to juggle all of those balls. As a result, is, yeah. your, your presenters have to be very nimble-footed in order to make sure that you know we don't miss huge chunks of it. And I think when people come behind the scenes and see it, they realise exactly how hmm. complex it is. And the idea of presenters is to make it seem as easy as possible. So um, it's quite an art. Very pleasing on the eye, though. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I promise you, I promise you, Francesco. You know, when she comes down to breakfast on the, the days that we're there, that you know, it's a it's a very natural, naturally good appearance, which most of us would uh, would struggle to cope with. I think it's fair to say. Just a few sort of um, relatively inane questions, really. First of all, um, what do you prefer, flat or jumps? Uh, Commentary-wise, it doesn't matter. Um, by the time I get to the end of at the national meeting, I'm ready for some flat. And by the time I get to those big end maidens, you know, at Newbury, when you're calling 20 of them, three handouts, two Carlids, and, you know, or Shadwell, as it is now, and two Carlids and everything else, you're, you're really ready for some jumping. Yeah. If I was a punter, if I, you know, a punter or, or a race goer, I would concentrate on jumping because what you learn lasts longer. Right. You see a horse and it's around for years. Yeah. Um, the flat can obviously, you know, it, it's it's very short term. I'm lucky enough to work in it full time, so I can keep abreast of it. It's very difficult for people at home to do that. So I would concentrate on jumping if I wasn't working in it full time. Uh, what about favourite horses? I mean, have you got a, a favourite flat horse and a favourite jumping horse? I suppose they uh, change with the horse, seasons. No, a favourite jumping horse will, will always be Pegwell Bay, who, when I was getting involved in racing, um, <coughs> um, was a... Uh, herder and then chaser with with Captain Forster and um, this was before I was involved professionally and he was he was a lovely horse and I, um, he won he was the first horse to complete the double of the what was then the Mackerson um, the two big handicaps at Cheltenham two and a half miles November and December the AF Budge I think it was called then when he won it and the Mackerson and um, I wrote to Captain Forster to say you know how much I'd like the horse etc and I got a reply back nice handwritten thing with a um, a photo which he, he you know, of Begwell Bay. And then, and then five days later, this great big, um, relatively poorly wrapped brown paper parcel appeared and was delivered. And it was one of Pegwell Bay's racing plates, which <laughs> Captain Forster had 
when they'd reshod the horse five days later, and obviously thought it would be good to send this young lad who'd written a letter in one of the, one of Pegwell World Bay's states, at least I'm assuming it was, the letter has some provenance, and yeah. it still hangs over my front door. In fact, I can lean out the window and see it now. That's good. So, um, That's good. That little touch is... The accessibility of racing is good. The people, mm. you know, you mentioned about getting to know people. Yeah. Um, I've certainly found that uh, with my kids, especially, you know, racing is accessible, and that's really important for kids. They they don't want Premier League players putting their heads down with their headphones on, getting off a bus, and no contact with the real world. No. You know, cricket is the same. Um, mm. Many cricketers are really giving us their time, and it makes such a difference. Yeah. Kids growing up, and uh. Uh, it did to me. Captain Forster was. Reinforce my interest in in Pegwell Bay, you know, and so he's my all-time favourite jump horse. And what about a flat? Um, flat, I'm a little bit more transient. I think the best horse I called um, would actually be see the stars rather than rather than Frankel personally. I just think what he achieved in winning a Group One every single month from whatever it was May right the way through to his, to his arc win in October was phenomenal. Mm. He wasn't as flashy as Frankel. He wasn't around as long as Frankel. But I think in terms of a horse that achieved the most in a particular season, Frankel's was spread out over a, a few more years, then I think see the stars that year, um, and I was lucky enough to call the majority of those, um, I think he was probably the best horse, I think, that, that during the, you know, the 30 years I've been doing this, uh, in terms of the ones I saw, I think, he, I think his performances were often overlooked because he didn't win by very far often, but that was what made him... Um, so bomb-proof in a way, yeah. and uh, yeah, certainly his, his performances were, uh, were were wonderful. I think. Well, I've got two myself: Dancing Brave on the flat and Floyd on the jumps. Yep. Um, Sorry, who was the jumps one? Floyd. Floyd, my word! Oh, Floyd! <laughs> no, that's going back. I, yeah. so I had one of my largest ever bets at this thing because I was, a, I was a, you know, the numbers side of it did involve punting. Yeah, and I used to bet to win the same amount, <clears throat> um, and I got it up to winning a hundred quid. And Floyd had a match against Biloxi Blues. It, was, it wasn't quite a match. There were four runners in a race at Kempton. And um, he touched evens, and I had an even 100. Now, that was huge then, because I would tend to operate about five or six to one, so my normal bets were 20. And I went down, stood down by the second last, and Biloxi Blues appeared to be running all over him. And um, Floyd rallied to win up the running. But I, it, was, it was a salient lesson, because at that stage, 100 quid was too big a bet for me. Yeah. <laughs> And as a result, it completely ruined the day, but I can still picture those two going to the second last that day at uh, Kenton. And yeah. then he also did me uh, when ride again, when he won the rendership over three miles. Remember Floyd when he started out, he said, tear away two miles early. He wasn't yeah. going to say three miles and a bus. And ride again went past him, and I was in the middle of a really long losing sequence. And I'd back ride again, and I thought, oh, thank heaven for that. And then Floyd rallied up the running and beat him. And to this day, it remains one of the most puzzling results. I cannot understand how Floyd managed to rally to beat the confirmed stayer, having been a few miles at that point. So, yeah, guy, I mean, he's, a, he's yeah. a really good horse. Lots of horses around that age. Seema was another one. Yeah. And I went on a, a programme and said about Seema. And I was recently at Injured Jockeys Fund with Jim Old um, was there. He was Seema's trainer. And he came to chat to me and said, I heard you said Seymour was one of your favourite horses and we spent a half an hour just chatting about him. Uh, it was brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. It's not always the biggest name, is it? No, no, it's remember. not. No, that's right. in particular was a, a bonny horse, white face, chestnut, great little horse. Jim Old was also a very nice bloke as well. Uh, well, I'll promise you that conversation, because he was sort of semi-apologetic for coming up and chatting to me about Seymour. And I said, honestly, haven't had a more fun horse of an hour for absolutely ages. We were reminiscing about... I knew he, I'd followed him as a young horse. I used to keep meticulous records, you know, saying about those cards. 
he won some, a mile and a half handicap on the flat, a lesser in the mud, and I realised that's what suited him. I hadn't realised how good a horse he'd actually been. He's done at Royal Ascot and this sort of thing, and it run really well at Epsom. Mm. But then, obviously, he was famous for nearly winning the Triumph, which would have been, at that stage, the biggest win I would ever have had. And he got nailed by... He led over the last and got beaten by Shiny Copper at 66-1. to one. Um, And then he... Was years later, he was second to Dawn Run in the in the Gold Cup and then the Champion Hurdle. Before Dawn Run went on to win the Gold Cup, and gave him a fr- gave her a fright as well. He Peter Skidmore Road, and I think it was as big as fifties or sixty sixties that day. Uh, but he was a really really good horse teamer, and it's those it's those ones that people latch onto, you know, early yeah. in their interest. So but it it, it, probably, it, uh, it amazes me how people like you, you know, you, you you've got all this this ready made information that you can you can bring out whenever you need to um you know how do you do it how do you how do you keep all that you know all that because it must be i don't know how you do it i, ju- the I just talk about the eighties and the nineties pretty well i'm not sure with the volume of racing these days it, it is it's it's for the for the modern stuff it is just prep really i mean mm. i can look at a field now and think hmm, don't think i've caught never heard of that horse before and i'll put a video on from two races back and there's me calling it. Yeah. You know, whereas in the old days, I would have known every single race I'd called. Yeah. Partly that's volume, partly it's old age. Um, but it, it's it's a little bit harder. And so as a result, it is making sure that you've prepped. And you, know, and you say you trust yourself that your memories will largely be correct. Um, they sometimes fail you down the years. But yeah, like these days, it's having good databases. You know, I've got an excellent database of, <coughs> um, called Proform, which allows you to... Query virtually anything you like, you know, how many mm. times someone's you suppose written for this, that, and the other, and because there are stats and there are stats, and you know, you can just quote lots of stats that you just picked up out of the paper, but they're the ones that you think in right, yeah. of interest, you know, um, yeah, and and try and use those when you're on the program to make it more interesting for the viewer. That's the objective. Yeah, um, absolutely. Trying to show off how smart you are because you found this, this bizarre bit of um, you know trivia, if you like. Sometimes, like we did in the Sunday show yesterday, and you know, are we out of estimate? You also keep our leashes that, that won at you know the, the Queen's Royal, you know, Gold Cup winner. Yeah. And just double check because there's more than one estimate, but yet, lo and behold, it's uh, you know. So as a result, you can add a little bit of colour into your programme. Yeah, yeah. And it won't necessarily be me. You just shout down to the, to the director to say that is the Royal, you know, that's the Majesty's Gold Cup winner. You know, that's out of. You know. um, yeah, it's, it's just it's, it's, it's fun. It's all about teamwork. You're saying, you know, the, the thing ITV really, really concentrated on right from where it goes. Yeah. Just keep it moving and, and make sure everyone's involved in front of and behind the camera. Yeah, And that's yeah. massively helpful. Your communications, most of the time, is more with people behind the camera or in the gallery or the studio, you know, than it's with your, your fellow presenters. And having the trust to work with each other, they know just by looking at you that you need to know something. Yeah. So your body language or your posture is, is, is great, and you only get that when you you know you know them well. And ITV have been very successful at that, probably more successful at that side of things than anything else, really, in generating a good, a good team spirit, but one that hopefully is open to criticism. We'll listen to it. We won't always agree with it, or it may well be that we'll have a different view. But we will listen to it, um, and quite often within you know with our own conversations, there's quite animated discussions yeah. um, as to what should and shouldn't be going into programmes, but that's, you know, that should be healthy, hopefully. Well, look, Richard, you have, I, I mean, I, I could sit on here for eight hours talking to you with some of the stories you can come up with, I'm sure. Um, uh, but unfortunately, <laughs> I think you'd have fallen asleep by the time you got going. But look, <laughs> thank, thank you. you, you, you 
Yeah, I like the curveball of, of, of choosing the music as well. That certainly texts me. I, I texted me a little bit. Yeah, quite, I, quite I don't know what to say about the music. I mean, let me just drag it up a minute. Where's it gone? I've got it here now. Where's it gone? Uh, like on. the 80s bias. Um, well, you know, I mean, uh, wait a minute. Where, are we? Where is it gone? Here we go. I mean, squeeze up the junction. The jam, eating rifles. I mean, I can't see you liking that at all. Doesn't doesn't no, fit really. my. No, so, so up the junction, up the junction is because of the lyrics. Yeah. I, I love language. Absolutely love language. That's after all my my sort of job, if you like. And one of the great joys of, of my uh, job of people who you come in contact with, or you, you know, you view as a friend, is Alistair Down, who for me was the you know the, the, the man who wrote the best prose. Mm. So to have communication with him and talking, and so up the junction is in there perfectly because I think it's one of the best written songs in terms of clever use of language and painting pictures. And the jam was just because that was nearer where we were all together going round with eighteen to twenty playing cricket and yeah. um, doing all sorts of other things. And um, one of my friends was a, a jam addict, if you like, and as a result, I sat and listened to so many jam songs. But and, it, um, most of this was a sort of 80s, isn't it? 80s, 90s yeah, almost. Yeah, absolutely, and Boomtown yeah. are the same. There used to be a, a, a magazine, a music magazine called Smash Hits, which <clears throat> it, it was, um, in those days, its key selling point was it put all the lyrics, it published all the lyrics, of, yeah. um, all of the songs. And we used to play this game in woodwork. It must have been woodwork because <laughs> you, you just, you know, we weren't sat down in a class. Yeah. You had to say the next line, and I can still recite every single line of Rat Trap, Call for Cats, or any of those, oh. because that was a game. That's what you did. You but, learned them. Some really odd ones as well from that generation. That's a year um, thing, though, isn't it? Because I mean, I'm the same with the '60s and early '70s. I'm just the same. Um, but you know, it's, it's an era thing, isn't it? Really. But uh, but look, oh, look it, it, sort of very cheeky female voices would have been the reason um, uh, for both sides now. Um, yeah, just good voices. Jenny Mitchell was very distinctive, and yeah. I was always a bit of a sucker for those slightly offbeat. Um, and then, and then the last one just being a, a, a song show, you know, so yeah. musical because um, it was really doing the acting when I was younger was something that probably uh, I didn't realise it at the time, but a couple of bizarre decisions, you know, um, yeah, led led to me having the confidence to do what I do now, and that probably came about falling into drama purely by accident. <laughs> so it's strange when you look back as the little turns in the road that, that end up being um, yeah. quite important even though at the time they don't seem it absolutely yeah absolutely well look Richard thank you ever so much for coming on I really do appreciate it uh, don't rush off because I want to ask you something else in a minute um, but but you yeah. know it's been, it's been fantastic and as I say I could have gone on for eight hours probably listening to you and uh, maybe maybe I'll jump bump into you at Wincanton or somewhere uh, in the near future if I get up there and um, yeah, you know yeah. Thank you ever so much for coming on. Um, keep up the good work on ITV and uh, cheerio. Thank you very much indeed for the invite. Much appreciated. Thank you. This is Three Valleys Radio. The heart is a blue. And you've been listening to the In Conversation programme with A.D. Hopper. Make sure you join us every week here on Three Valleys Radio. And the reason that you had to care, the traffic is stuck. And you're not moving anywhere. You thought you found a friend to take you out of this place somewhere.